with uh, COVID, many countries are at risk of financial distress, it seems, despite really historically low borrowing costs. And Me Too and I have been thinking recently a lot about a number of these countries, but um, the one we want to talk about today is Zambia, the first African country to default on its debt since the pandemic started, and maybe an early test case, not the earliest, but an early test case for a debt restructuring that will implicate a variety of forces, some of them relatively new in the context of sovereign debt. Uh, This is a, a country with a relatively small number, but a significant dollar amount of Eurobond debt, um, currently held, as I understand it, by a creditor group with a large enough position to block most traditional restructuring mechanisms, uh, and currently uh, a creditor block not seemingly in a mood to negotiate over a restructuring. It's a country with a large amount of official and quasi-official debt originating from China, uh, and potentially a country that will be one of the early test cases for the G20's new program, new thinking about how to coordinate debt relief in this new, new world. So our guest today has done some of the most valuable reporting that we have seen on um, international finance most broadly, on emerging markets more narrowly, and recently about Zambia in particular. And our guest is Tommy Stubbington from the Financial Times. So welcome, Tommy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark. It's very, very good to be here. So I was was hoping we could start with just a sort of an introductory background question. I would have said, you know, my understanding is that 15 years ago or so, we could have described Zambia as a country with pretty low debt burden, relatively rich in natural resources, and so well positioned to uh, buffer the kind of shock that COVID represents. Of course, COVID is sort of a monumental shock, but um, nevertheless, between that period of time, maybe 15 years ago, when Zambia was in a relatively good position with regard to its debt, a lot changed. So I'm wondering if we can start off maybe just with some background about how that happened and how Zambia got into debt trouble in the first place. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the, the first important point to make here maybe is, is you're absolutely right. This is the, um, the, first, the first African default of the of the covid era and certainly you know the way that we've we've you know framed these events when when writing about them is, is to talk about this as 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 a kind of product of, of covid but it's important to remember i think that, that zambia was in trouble um you know before the before the pandemic arrived uh, if, if we go back to early 2020 the the country's euro bonds were, were trading at a level that implied significant distress the, uh, the the belief among investors that they you know they were not going to get all of their money back that there was there was you know a, a decent chance of, of, of some form of restructuring down the line now as you say the question is how do we get here if we if we go back to 2012 which is when um, the Zambian government sold its first uh, its first euro bond its first external dollar bond um, 
this this was a time when, as you say, we're talking about a uh, an economy that was growing very very fast, um, that was was resource rich, albeit highly reliant on um, on on copper, which I think is is something just above eighty percent of Zambia's exports are are, are copper or, or copper products. Um, so I mean, it was it was that context uh, of very rapid growth and low debt in twenty twelve. Debt to GDP was in the low thirties, uh, low thirty percent um, in, in twenty twelve that allowed um, Zambia to embark on this series of eurobond sales. They, they sold three eventually, um, culminating in, in twenty fifteen, and I have three billion outstanding. Um, yeah, uh, when when Zambia first first sold its its eurobond in twenty twelve, the yield was was around about. 5.6%, I think, which was um, which was lower than Spain at the time, is is, is an interesting way of looking at it. The um, <laughs> the market was 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 prepared to accept a lower borrowing cost from from Zambia, and you know maybe at the time that that did appear to make sense. You were talking about um, you know an economy that had recently been experiencing double digit growth. I think the the size of the economy doubled in the in the decade to 2015, um, and then you also had this um, this 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 International context of the you know the aftermath of the financial crisis, extraordinary central bank actions, very low interest rates and bond yields around the world. Investors were desperate for returns and you know were willing to go further and further afield to to get those returns. So you know that was that was fertile territory for governments like Zambia to come to the bond market uh, and and raise debt. Now that that is part of the story of of how Zambia went from. Thirty uh, percent debt to GDP uh, in, in 2012 to somewhere above 100 uh, percent, possibly as high as 120 percent, depending on how bad the contraction has been this year today. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the the second part of that story is is, is the fact that the the, the boom, um, the, the kind of commodity driven boom in, in Zambia's economy was was so uh, so intense, you know, driven largely by uh, by Chinese demand for copper that the Kind of the, the traditional sources of funding, um, you know, the sort of concessional finance that um, a country like Zambia would have got from from the likes of the IMF or the World Bank, or I suppose the World Bank particularly in this context, um, you know, just weren't enough to to, to satisfy the demand for, uh, you know, for, for financing infrastructure projects, um, dams, roads, airports, all, all of that sort of thing. So, so the country turned to a kind of um, a, a borrowing binge in which. Chinese project finance played a very, very large role, which is why we see this situation today, where um, the you know the euro bonds are about a quarter of, of, of Zambia's external debt, probably another quarter, although although possibly a lot more than that. Um, you know, according to some analysts, is is, is Chinese bilateral debt, which uh, you know, as we will uh, discuss, I'm sure, what kind of complicates the. Um, uh, the, the 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 situation with a with a restructuring going on, um, that's that's the situation that we saw at the uh, at the beginning of twenty twenty. Now, obviously, the the pandemic arrived. Um, you know, even if the the direct disruption to an economy like Zambia was was clearly much lower than it has been in 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 some Western economies, you know, the the impact on the the copper price alone. Um, was you know was enough to uh, you know to, to push the country over the edge basically, um, and you know we've we've uh, you know we've seen a situation where um, the you know the government can no longer go on um, go on servicing that that debt. So, it's already sorry. You, you so so this, if I if I could pick up on that point um, uh, quickly before we go on. So um, the there are elections 
coming up if I in um, the summer, perhaps. If August, I remember. that's right. Yes. So there's some sense that I know that the the government, perhaps not directly, but through a state-owned firm, the government just acquired the interest formerly held by Glencore in the what is it the the Mopani copper mine, and so the government. Maybe not directly, it's sort of off balance sheet, but I have to imagine this implicates the government's finances too. The government is piling on more debt. Um, can you give us a little bit of the background about that? What, it, what explains the government's decision to uh, take on the, the debt of the, the copper mine from Glencore? Um, in a word, politics. Um, the, I mean, as you say, it's, it's a significant chunk of, of of extra debt. I mean, on top of the the, the, the roughly twelve billion dollars of, of external debt that Zambia already has, this you know this the, the loans associated with the this Mapani copper mine are, are an extra, I think, one and a half billion dollars. Now, as you say, that won't sit directly on the government's balance sheet, but um, I mean, I think the the IMF is unlikely to, uh, to to see it that way when they you know, when they make their calculations about the sustainability of of, of Zambia's debt burden, um, and and you know indeed neither do to, to private bondholders when they're you know when they're thinking about whether to offer any any concessions of their own to Zambia. Now, why why have they done this? Um, I mean, the the government of uh, of, of uh, Edgar Lungu has has recently sort of talked about taking strategic stakes in the in the the copper industry. Which, as I say, is is the um, you know the you know, hugely important to the, the economy as a whole, um, and and this is they say about project, uh, pr- protecting jobs that that basically Glencore had um, had proposed to to temporarily shut shut down this mine, and the government says that that was going to be you know that was going to threaten I think as many as sixteen thousand jobs according to the government's uh, government's own figures. Uh, um, you know what they've done. Uh, you know is, is effectively take over and 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 they say protect these jobs now. You know during the election campaign ahead of August, the you know the uh, the, the the Zambian um, copper belt will be will be you know absolutely um, uh, absolutely key to to Lungu's re-election prospects, and it is likely to be close. Um, so you know whether this is 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 kind of you know, an important step protecting jobs, or this is this is electioneering. Uh, I, I won't make a judgment on that, but but one way or the other, this, this shows that that you know the politics of the situation don't point towards the government. Um, you know, kind of swiftly reigning in deficits at this point, or, or, or you know, working, doing everything they can to cut debt. So, Tommy, can I? Um, th- this seems like a good uh, point to talk about the politics of the Chinese involvement as well. And mm-hmm. just wondering about the dynamics of uh, China's lending vis-a-vis the private creditors. I was looking at one of your uh, older pieces, I think from November of 2020, uh, where you were reporting on the fact that the private creditors did not want to uh, negotiate Uh, until they knew about the extent of the Chinese lending and uh, the willingness of China to participate. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if, um, you know, you could uh, tell me a little bit about, tell us a little bit about uh, both the dynamics with China in terms of the debt negotiations, but uh, how it's playing into the local politics. Because I imagine that uh, locally, 
China is not seen as as much of a villain as, say, Wall Street is. But that, that could, I'm just guessing that China is more of a long-term player funding infrastructure projects, whereas Wall Street is seen as, you know, trying to extract as much as it can and then run away. But that, that may just be my um, very superficial understanding. I mean, I think I think that's absolutely right in terms of how the the Zambian government has sought to portray, um, you know, the the negotiations that unfolded um, autumn last year. Uh, just just to kind of um, fill in fill in those details, it was in September. Um, the the Zambian government asked private bondholders for a six month standstill in in interest payments, um, and basically at no stage during the negotiations such as they were, and I understand there wasn't very much direct engagement between the bondholder group and the Zambian government itself. Um, at no stage during those negotiations did did the bondholders look remotely likely to say yes, and in the event they, they said no, and that's what pushed um, you know, Eventually pushed Zambia into um, uh, into default when they when they missed a, a November coupon payment. Um, yeah, I mean the 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 principal reason given by the bondholders for for refusing that is is uh, the issue of of, of intra creditor equity. That you know the idea that they're being asked for something that um, that China is not. I mean, um, it's specifically China has been uh, you know has been cast as, as as the bogeyman by the um by the creditors while you know while as you say the um inside zambia there's been there's been attempts for, to to portray the uh, uh the, the bondholders as the uh, as the party that's kind of holding all of this up i think um i mean i think there is um that there is there is a certain amount of, of good faith in in what the bondholders are saying that i mean certainly what they're what they're essentially worried about is is giving up anything at this stage of the negotiations before before they have clarity on um, exactly what it is. I mean, what what the bondholders say is, is not only do they not know what terms Chinese lenders have, have, have accepted. Now, the, the Zambian government has said that a couple of the the Chinese creditors, I think it's China Exim Bank and China Development Bank, have have deferred some interest payments and they've accrued some arrears to some Chinese lenders, but. I mean, I, I don't think there's very much confidence among bondholders that they've they've kind of truly opened the books and and laid out the full extent of um, uh, you know of, of of what those debts are and exactly what is owed. And I think the creditors would argue that that you know the IMF wants to see that as well before the IMF will provide any sort of aid. So they're they're not kind of necessarily going out on a on a limb and behaving like vulture funds. They are uh, you know they're just waiting for for. Uh, for, for transparency. Um, so, Tommy, you know, let, let, me, um, let me play uh, devil's advocate here uh, since I, I'm always skeptical when private bondholders uh, raise issues of equity and fairness. Uh, the, the, this, this is that, that is, that's just not in their DNA to care very much about. Uh, in in my experience, uh, but um, you know maybe maybe they've turned the page at COVID and they want <laughs> want equity and fairness. Uh, but from a from a market point of view, I, I went back in preparation for our conversation today and looked at the terms of some of the Zambian euro bonds, and mm -hmm. uh, you know the, these. These contracts are, they typically have provisions restricting sometimes uh, what will happen vis-a-vis -vis other creditors. So, for example, it is uh, very standard to have uh, 
equality clauses, equal treatment clauses. Now, Mark and I have uh, done lots of research on how these clauses are not drafted very well, but that's on the creditors if they draft crappy clauses. But these bonds are mm -hmm. full of clauses that say, uh, that say for just to give you two, uh, two examples, you know, you have to treat all uh, creditors equally, um, in uh, certain contexts. And, you know, if you pledge assets to uh, another creditor, uh, you have to pledge uh, equivalently to us, unless uh, the pledge of assets is of a certain type that we think is actually good. Uh, you know, they, so the, the creditors, these highly sophisticated creditors were perfectly okay with Zambia borrowing from China and without any requirements that this kind of borrowing be disclosed. And the IMF was perfectly okay with this. Now, now to cry wolf, uh, it just seems a bit much uh, to me. Now, please tell me that I am wrong uh, in being deeply skeptical uh, about this. Well, um, no. So I, I, I share your your cynicism about the the motives of creditors, at least to a certain extent. Um, I, I don't mean to suggest that they are again you know, kind of motivated by by some um, you know sense of the greater good here. I mean, I think it's it's more the kind of rail politique of the situation, which is, um, you know, why should we give up something in this negotiation um, before we know, uh, you know, what the what the government's kind of greater strategy towards debt sustainability is. Um, I mean, I think I think it, it's probably worth making the point here that all of all of the creditors that I have spoken to recognise that there will be a restructuring. You know, nobody nobody kind of expects to be to be made whole. Here. Um, it's it's more a case of of uh, you know how when will it happen and how will it happen how will we get there and the you know the the back and forth over this over this moratorium on interest payments was i think you know very much an opening salvo in this in this um, uh, you know in this in this negotiation um and the you know the creditors felt that they they didn't really have any reason to to, to kind of give up what what leverage they had at, at this point in negotiations. Now, obviously, they will say publicly they'll they'll talk a lot about um, you know the the fiduciary duty they have to their end investors, and they will you know uh, portray uh, their their end investors as as just ordinary pensioners, and and you know there's 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 some truth to that, or, or at the very least the the kind of the the notion. Um, that, that you know that that is a, a priority. I think has complicated these these type of um, these type of restructurings. Whereas in the past you might have had um, you know the, the the people that were hanging around for for money were kind of more easily characterizable as, as vulture funds. Now you're just talking about you know the the kind of the regular asset management industry being very deep into the the, the bonds of, of a country like Zambia, and they you know they um, will will talk about the, the fiduciary duty to their to their clients when when claiming that they can't they can't give an inch. So yeah, I mean I think your I think your 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 skepticism about the purity of their motives is absolutely right. But I I I think when when they speak frankly, it's it's more the case we we know that. We know that we know that a haircut is coming, but we didn't feel like uh, it kind of served our interests to um, to, to 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 budge on the um, on the issue of of the moratorium at this point. 
So Tommy, I, I was intrigued by your reference to uh, the euro bond holders as distinct from the vulture funds. I don't really like, I, I struggle with that word sometimes. The distressed debt funds, maybe, who knows? The, the litigious um, baddies that everybody likes mm-hmm. to, to hate on. Um, and I think we need to take a break now, but when we come back, maybe we can talk a little more about that difference and whether it is a difference uh, in the way sure. that it used to be. But let's, let's take a short break and then come back. So, Tommy, at the end of the first half, we were talking about this difference between the litigation-oriented distressed debt funds, the so-called vultures, and um, the holders of Zambia's euro bond debt. And and that's a distinction I think that um, a lot of people would draw and that traditionally had a fair amount of meaning. And I'm wondering whether it has the meaning that it used to have. And the reason I'm, I'm asking is, so my understanding is Pharaoh Capital is one of the largest holders of what amounts to a blocking position in Zambian debt. And Pharaoh's one of the more aggressive uh, litigating um, investors in the Venezuelan debt context as well. And we've seen, even in the the sort of Argentine and Ecuadorian restructurings, we've seen the, you know, the more traditional institutional types of investors without necessarily litigating, but we've seen them take a much more activist and aggressive role in um, uh, restructuring talks at least. So I'm wondering whether the world has shifted somewhat so that some of the same risks are now posed by a wider range of more tra- quote unquote traditional investors. Yeah, so I mean, I think that that distinction you you describe is absolutely is blurring. Um, you, you know, you used to be able to, uh, to to kind of mark out a distinct class of, of, of litigation focused investors, people who were, you know, were willing to to, to dig in for the long haul, to to, to play hold out um, in in hope of, you know, a big a big payoff years down the line. That that certainly um, contrasted with you know, I suppose your your mainstream asset managers who who didn't have stomach for that sort of thing and tended to sell up to the to the to the so called vultures when uh, you know when these restructuring situations arrived. Uh, as you say, you know, Argentina um, and Ecuador, uh, you know, have two situations recently where we've seen, uh, yes, we've seen the likes, you know, hedge funds like Lafaro are, are playing a leading role, but you know, lots of the um, lots of the mainstream asset managers are heavily involved, as you say. Um, I mean, Lebanon's another one that springs to mind. We saw, um, you know, we saw Ashmore, who were, you know, seen as, you know, among the among the traditional um, emerging market asset managers, were playing. Um, you know, playing quite an aggressive role there and having bought up a blocking stake in the um, in the euro bond that, that that the government defaulted on in March last year. Um, so I think I think absolutely this um, you know this kind of traditional distinction um, that that you know that we might have might have uh, had is, is 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 blurring and possibly possibly breaking down entirely. And we're seeing the you know the the litigious funds working alongside the uh, you know the, the the those that would would, would Sort of cast themselves as as as, as more um, you know pedestrian sort of custodians of pensioners' money, um, and you know and, and and I think a lot of those funds will have seen the 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 
the payout that that uh, Elliot got after, you know, it's years of um, um, years of uh, you know years long campaign in in Argentina and, and and said, yeah, we want some of that too. So um, I think it's 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 partly there there are two different dynamics. It's partly the kind of the greater disbursement of you know. Uh, of this debt to a number of, of, of different uh, fund management firms around the world. Uh, you know, bear in mind for, for African countries, this this round of restructurings that we're seeing at the moment is is the first in that, you know, there just wasn't, uh, you know, the, there wasn't significant euro bonds in, in previous crises that, you know, they only started coming to markets in, uh, uh, you know, sort of the, the past decade or so. So this, this is a kind of um, a, a new problem. So it's, it's partly just that there are, are different types of holders out there, but it's also that I think, you know, as I say, they've they've seen, the um you know the the potential payouts you can get from 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 digging in and and uh, maybe more inclined to do so than they were in the past. So Tommy, just on this same theme, one of the questions that I've been wondering about since reading you brought up Ashmore, and I remember reading in the press, uh, it might have been in the FT um, about how because Ashmore has, is on the market and is traded, um, you know, they, they, they suffered quite a bit as a function of their large holdings of uh, say, uh, for example, Lebanese debt. And then more recently, mm -hmm. I read about, I think Greylock uh, going into uh, bankruptcy because of its uh, holdings uh, of a lot of, emerging market debt. And so I'm wondering how this, uh, this new shape of the market where these big funds hold emerging market debt much uh, later into a crisis than they used to is playing out because a lot of them are uh, taking a, a beating right now. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to the details of the Greylock situation, but certainly with with Ashmore, I mean, yes, they were they were deeply into the the shorter term Lebanese euro bonds, but also they were involved in, I think, Argentina and Ecuador and possibly Zambia as well. So they, you know, they they had this big short duration strategy, which, um, you know, had done had done very well until this crisis arrived, and you know, absolutely has been beaten up. I mean, I, I haven't seen latest performance figures, but um, you know. In, in March and April last year, they you know the, the performance was was disastrous and they had huge outflows and and so you know will will investors come back in in such great numbers to that type of strategy? I think it probably remains to be seen. Um, but but you know certainly they 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 took flight very rapidly when um, you know when a series of of, of crises arrived. I, I apologize. I inadvertently took us away from where I actually wanted to go, which was back to Zambia. And, mm -hmm. uh, but I got distracted by this, this, the fascinating conversation about the new dynamics in the market. But um, I don't want uh, us to forget Zambia because um, if I'm correct, uh, Zambia just a few weeks ago invoked the common framework, the magic words of, we want the common framework. And I'm wondering um, what uh, your understanding of how this has impact, 
creditors' views. So here's the backstory, and it goes back to one of our prior episodes where we talked to a good friend of ours about the common framework, and Mark and I, being cynical, just could really didn't find that much of great value in the common framework. But our, our good friend said, no, you know, you guys are missing the whole point of this. The whole uh, big achievement in the common framework is uh, to uh, rope in China to take the same terms as the rest of the Paris Club. Now, if this has been achieved, then Zambia invoking the common framework should send a signal to all of the private creditors, not to worry people, uh, now that China is in the common framework, you can be assured that China will take the same haircuts as the rest of the Paris Club, and you will get comparable treatment, and all will be well. Uh, so is, is that how the world is uh, playing out? Uh, I mean, I think the key word there is if, isn't it? Um, if if China will take the same haircuts and if if the, you know, for example, t talking about the private creditors again, if the bondholders can be convinced that China has taken similar haircuts to the ones that they are facing, then then yes, I think that would make a meaningful difference. But um, yeah, I, I, I'd say it kind of remains to be seen. Um, you know, I, I think certainly among among bondholders there's still you know considerable skepticism that that by invoking this framework that uh, i suppose somehow magically um assuages their concerns about uh, you know being uh, being treated the same as as as, as chinese creditors um so I, you know i think it's it it, it might help but um uh, yeah, we can't just assume that it, um, you know that, that the outcome. This is at a stroke. Uh, everybody, everybody is immediately happy that um, uh, you know that, that that China will be treated the same, Chinese creditors will be treated the same, and that we can proceed. We were joking that you just have to invoke the name of the common framework, say common framework three times in a row, and all of your debt restructuring <laughs> problems go away. Um, so, so the well, I mean, the, the DSSI framework last year clearly didn't um, manage to do this. And I, I suppose, you know, if, if the difference with the common framework is, is supposed to be that, that, it's, that it has the Chinese on board, you know, then, then, then perhaps that makes a difference. But I think, you know, I think there is, um, you know, there's a bigger question about even if, these these frameworks are being invoked. Will will um, you know? Will will governments be in a hurry to uh, you know to default on 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 bonds with the you know the implications that that might have for market access going forward? Um, I think it's you know it's 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 not necessarily a done deal trying to trying to come up with something that encompasses um, the you know the the private sector as well um, is, is 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 tricky. And the so. Um... I realized that we haven't um, completely covered just some of the basics about the origin of some of the Chinese lending to Zambia. You gave us some of the details earlier, but I, so from just as background, one of the, the challenges, it seems to me, is the uncertainty about how quasi-official lenders, uh, quasi-official Chinese lenders are going to be treated and whether mm -hmm. that debt is sort of lumped in with the, in the official bucket or whether it's put into the private bucket. So I'm, uh, it, could you give an overview to the extent you can about 
where the Chinese lending has originated. And then there have been some uh, at least debt deferrals that some of these Chinese lending entities have already agreed to. What, if anything, do we know about those negotiations? So the, uh, you know, according to the, the Zambian government's own presentation to, to, to bondholders last year, there is, uh, I think, around about 3 billion of, of, of bilateral debt to, to China. So roughly the same as the, as the, um, the, the volume of outstanding euro bond debt. Um, and does, think, does bilateral really mean bilateral or does well, it mean originating from within the sort of geography of China? That that is what um, certainly the uh, the investors and I think potentially the IMF as well feel that they just they just don't really know. Um, th- there's also a very large chunk of debt um, which is just described as as non-euro bond commercial creditors. Um, now, presumably, I mean, given given that you know the the big driver of this 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 wave of borrowing that Zambia undertook over the past decade was. Uh, you know, was 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 project finance for infrastructure. Um, you know, particularly infrastructure around the copper industry, and you know, bearing in mind that the, um, you know, that 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 demand for copper was originating in China. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of these these um, these these projects were financed by by Chinese state-backed entities, and it's not clear in many cases, I think, whether um, those those come under. You know this this uh, this this bilateral debt figure that they've given, or whether they're, they're a huge, uh, you know, chunk of the of the debt owed to commercial creditors could also be be kind of characterised as as on some level, um, you know, chi- Chinese debt, state-linked Chinese debt, um, and and again that that raises the question of of you know of of, of how how are those 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 different creditors treated in in the restructuring process? Now, as I say, we know of a couple of the um, of the big creditors, um, China Exim Bank and um, China China Development Bank. I think are the the two that the, the government has said have you know have, has given figures for the amount of uh, of interest that's been that's been deferred. But but I mean, the feeling among the creditors certainly is that those are kind of uh, are figures without context. You know what. What is what is the total outstanding there to you know to to, to similar types of um, you know it's it's <laughs> to to say that that you know a couple of Chinese lenders have um, you know have, have 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 had their kind of obligations deferred doesn't necessarily tell you what the overall picture looks like and 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 and, and that's the concern right here is that um, is that we don't actually know the you know what the what the the, the true figure is. So Tommy. Just one more question on this, uh, since you know the details much more. My uh, superficial impression of the difference between a lot of the infrastructure lending of China and uh, the euro bond lending is that the Chinese lenders not only have lent money, but they they have these giant projects on the ground. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of uh, workers there. They can't can't pick up and leave at a moment's notice, and they are not likely to pick up and leave at a moment's notice. Their incentives are to stay long term it's i think we had a political scientist on uh, last week um, who talked about uh, the chinese lending being a quote unquote patient capital uh, mm. now um, 
we know that the, the bond market lending uh, is not patient. It moves really fast, as we saw at, during the sudden stop of March of 2020. So just uh, in terms of analytics, it, it becomes very hard, at least to me, to, to compare what is equivalent treatment uh, when you have very different types of lending. And unless they do it contractually ex ante, uh, after the fact, th this seems a near impossible task that even though uh, the common framework is just so magical and wonderful, <laughs> it's hard for me to say, like, I mean, it's just full of vague generalities. I mean, I'm not sure. Even if, even if everybody agrees we're going to have comparable treatment, who's going to decide what's comparable and what's equivalent? Right, exactly. I mean, as you say, the nature of the, um, uh, you know, the type of lending we're talking about is completely different. And I, and I think it's my understanding that the, you know, the, the Chinese lenders in the past have been, um, you know, this is not just talking about Zambia, but, but kind of more broadly, the, you know, the, the huge amounts of lending under the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese lenders have been kind of very happy to, 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 to go their own way, they operate differently. When when countries are having trouble repaying, they do offer things like um, uh, you know, sort of repayment holidays. Um, yeah. So what what does in that context what does what does equal treatment even look like? I mean, I think again, if I'm if I'm uh, sort of thinking about what the, the 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 bondholders would would say to that question is, you know, before we can even get to that question, we need to we need we need the transparency issue to be uh, to be addressed i mean you know, perhaps once once all the cards are on the table um you know somebody somebody can come up with a with with a, with a definition of intra creditor equity that, that that satisfies bondholders but but yes i mean i think you're you're right that it's 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 very difficult to 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 know um you know what that might look like when, when we think about just how entangled uh, an economy like zambia has 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 become with with um you know with with china you know both in terms of demand for its copper and and then the you know the financial resources that have uh you know enabled this this economic growth over the past sort of 15 years or so uh, i mean if, if you if you call the uh the, the zambian finance ministry which is something i've had course to do a couple of times or a few times in the last year um there is you know the, the it's it's often often difficult to get through to anyone, but there is a a recorded message that that will often play, and it plays in Chinese first and then English second. Um, you know, I only mention that as a kind of illustration of of you know just how central um, Chinese finance has been to the um, to the recent boom. So, if I can just um, shift gears a little bit as we wrap up the the episode, I wanted to ask if you would answer a broader markets question. So one of the kind of defining features of modern uh, bond markets is the sort of astonishingly cheap money that seems to be on offer, notwithstanding the really, in some respects, quite gloomy economic picture that one would think would, would have emerged from COVID. And yeah, I was reading an article recently that you had written uh, along with Colby Smith at the FT um, about the vast sort of amount of emerging markets borrowing in January in particular. And so I'm wondering if you are willing to prognosticate a little bit about 
whether we can expect this era of cheap capital to continue? Are there signs in the market that portend danger? What do you think we're looking at over the next few months to a year? So are there signs that portend danger? Yes. I mean, the 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 rise in in US bond yields, the you know, the the um, the bond market sell off that we're seeing at the moment, uh, you know, on, on whether it's whether it's driven by by expectations of higher inflation or, or just just stronger growth. We, you know, we've seen a pretty big move in global bond markets over the past few weeks. Um, if, if you cast your mind back to, I think it was 2013, the, the original taper tantrum when the Fed was talking about slowing down its asset purchases and, and possibly, you know, one day getting to raising rates. Um, and, you know, that caused the big bond market sell-off and, and emerging markets were the, you know, were, were you know, the, the sector of the market that really bore the brunt of that. I think, should this should this US bond market sell-off continue at a, a similar pace, that would... Um, you know that would really ask questions of whether investors are, are you know, willing to to continue kind of flinging money at emerging markets in in the way that they you know they were doing in January and have done for for years really. Um, I think I think we're probably we're probably not there yet. It's it's worth remembering that while we've seen a big move up in 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 bond yields and in, 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 you know in rates in in developed markets, we're kind of only back to where we were prior to the the onset of the of, of the covid crisis in, in most cases it's it's whether we go significantly beyond that and we we you know we do see some sort of um you know some sort of uh, lasting pickup in inflation and and you know kind of move to a regime of meaningfully higher bond yields then i think that really does um you know that 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 really does cause a problem for the uh, you know the, the the huge investment that's flowed into emerging markets in recent years. If, if when I when I was speaking to investors in January about the the kind of the drivers of this um, this this interest in um, you know in, in emerging markets, this kind of red hot market for emerging market debt that we've seen, um, most seemed you know pretty pretty relaxed about that that prospect. They um, you know they would still rather be in those higher yielding emerging markets, um, you know, where there is at least kind of some some spread over and above US treasuries that, um, you know, that, that as they would see it offers them some sort of cushion in a bond sell off. I, I think that that uh, that attitude may start to look complacent if the if the US bond sell off accelerates, and then what you'll see is is a kind of great sucking sound as capital is, is is pulled out of emerging markets and goes back into, into the US as, as people are able to get higher rates there. So, Tommy, do, do, we should um, let you go, but I, I can't help but ask a, a one final question, if you don't mind. And it, it is that my understanding of what you just said in response to Mark is that investors in much of the emerging market world are not really making calculations about whose growth rate is likely to be better and whose, uh, whose public health system is dealing with COVID better. But instead, they just are seeing these uh, better yields in the emerging market world and hoping that they can exit the market before uh, their dumber compatriots when you know the markets crash. It, it is, is that too cynical of a view that really we have a bubble and people are just like I'm smarter than the guy next I mean, door and so I'll get out faster? I think I think that's that's 
that that that's 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 cl- that's close to how I would have it. The, the the bit perhaps that I might take issue with is is the is the inevitability that you uh, you know that you have a crash. Um, I think, I mean, it's really it's an illustration of the fact that in in bond markets everything is relative, right? So, um, what what was uh, you know what was um, expensive before looks looks cheap today because you know because everything in the world is expensive you know that is and this is not just this is not just emerging market debt where we see it's obviously it's you know it's a big um it's a big driver of of you know stock markets to record highs over the past decade is that you know if your risk-free rate is lower then uh, you know that encourages um encourages investors to take more risk elsewhere um i think but i think i mean i think you're absolutely right that that there is there is a bit of of a sense in which you know um, some sort of sell-off will be coming, and, and and some of these investors will be, uh, you know, we hoping that they can they can get out first and you know sort of uh, pass on the losses to someone else. I think, um, but I think, you know, fundamentally, what's happened is 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 you have you have people who run emerging market bond funds, for example, who feel like they have they have no choice, right? They've been they've been given capital by end investors. Um, and they've got to put it to work. Now, if you talk to those end investors and say, "Well, why are you allocating to emerging markets?" Then you know they they they're trying to they're trying to hit return targets, and and uh, you know that's where there are higher yields on offer. Uh, so so absolutely, I mean you know it's 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 yield yield grabbing behaviour that has um, you know shaped uh, you know shaped shaped emerging market bonds for for the last decade or more. I think I think I think the only thing I would say is we could have had this conversation and. and um, you know, talked about it inevitably coming under unstuck five years ago, perhaps, um, you know, people were having these sorts of conversations then. And if people had stopped allocating to those markets five years ago, they would have missed out on a lot of returns. And so, you know, it's, it's this, it's this, this idea that, um, you know, you can't afford to, um, you know, you can't afford to pass up the, to the, the, the returns when they're on offer, but, um, but it's, it's very difficult to know when the music stops. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for your time today. I know that we are um, we have a, a long time to wait, I think, and watch the situation in Zambia and elsewhere. So we're looking forward to reading a lot more of the work you and your FT colleagues have been doing there and um, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank, thank you very much for having me. Look, I, I look forward to, um, to discussing the situation with you, with you both as it unfolds. Thank you.